John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 220.DE1411, certificate number 24940. Christmas KFC. Kentucky Christmas. Christmas Merry Christmas. Ken. Happy holidays to all who celebrate the various holidays. Happy Hanukkah. We're in the middle of Hanukkah right now. Happy Kwanzaa Festive coming up. Kwanzaa uh, in, what, a, f- a few days? Uh, just a few days, yeah. Three or four days. Uh, happy Festivus. Um, happy uh, Buddhist festival of Christmas. What's the closest Hindu or Muslim festival? I mean, the Muslim ones move around in the calendar, in the yeah. solar calendar. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Is there a... Is there a Hindu Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be the only person not Hindu in a red state Googling, is there a Hindu Christmas I didn't right say now. is there a, yeah, but, uh, oh, Pongal, which is the three-day festival uh, held in the South, celebrating the winter solstice. Um, I mean, the thing is that their, uh, you know, their festival of lights or whatever, mm-hmm. Diwali, is not anywhere around the the December season. Right. So, well, in southern India, so what, right? What is it that makes it a Christmas festival? I think just just winter solstice because because it is in the northern hemisphere, so it would be around the same time. India, I'm saying. Diwali moves also. Did you know this? Is it because is it for lunar reasons? It's got to be. It's an early autumn celebration, and yet it's in November next year. How is that early autumn? <laughs> um, that seems late. Autumn. Maybe autumn's different when you're in a tropical subcontinent. Well, in any case, we're not afraid to teach the controversy here. And um, what what's the controversy? Oh, I don't remember which Christmas, which winter holiday should you celebrate? Yeah, or can you even say Merry Christmas? That's the controversy that uh, that suddenly I re remembered um, because you know, of course, Christmas is being canceled by liberal ivory tower leftist woke. Uh, Crybabies like you and me. The Starbucks cups used to have a picture of the crucifixion on them, <laughs> and, and now they just have a snowflake. <laughs> I, I just suddenly, I know a person who, and this, uh, I don't know what this says about me, but you know when people go around the country and, 
and to commemorate all the different places they've been, they used to collect little thimbles or yeah. little bells, spoons, spoons, uh, spoons that are bells. <laughs> you saw a lot. And this is a younger person, a, a millennium person, who collected Starbucks, local Starbucks mugs, which apparently was a thing. Are they different? Yeah, every 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 different city wow. or state would have its own. You know, like San Francisco, you visited the Starbucks in that San Francisco. That sounds so much cooler than my closet of hard rock t-shirts <laughs> so, that, that I might just go throw them all away. She actually has a wall where she displayed, and of course, then they changed, and so the new mugs aren't as good as the old mugs. She has a wall where she displays all of her old, original Starbucks mugs, and I just pictured one with like a really gruesome, um, like Southern European crucifixion uh, picture, <laughs> and I was like, that, oh, if only... There like, might be somewhere. Like the... Uh, Is there some small Italian town? <laughs> Sicilian Starbucks. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we uh, <clears throat> we love all the Christmas, Christmas traditions. Do you have any... Uh, I thought you were going to say we love all the Christians. We love every Christian. Not everyone. Um, but uh, God bless God, us, everyone. Asterisk. Except for... Except for the following. Some people should die. Uh, what are some Christmas traditions that are unique to your family? Oof. We must have done this on this show before. Uh, Who even knows? They have We've been to be doing unique. this show for 15 years. They have to be unique. I always try to find a Christmas movie I've never seen. And that doesn't mean going into... I think for most people that would be like, well, there's six new Hallmark movies. Find, right. find one about the city girl coming home to her small town and uh, romancing the handsome guy that runs the Christmas tree lot. Have you seen Home Alone 2? Yes. Have you seen Home Alone 3? Is there a Home Alone three? Is that, is that, I think there's. Is like that the one with the different them. kid? Maybe. Uh, no, I'm a, okay. I'm a I'm a Culkinian only. Like to me, the rest are, uh, are actually heresy and apocrypha. That kid doesn't exist. He was never home. He was never alone. He doesn't exist. <laughs> is there a Christmas theme to Edward Scissorhands? Or is that more of a? It's got snow. Right. There is snow. Oh yeah. Right. Of course. It snows on Christmas. Because of him. Because of Edward Scissorhands. That movie denies the power, not just of Jesus, but of the weather. Yeah. To say that snow comes from uh, a, a boy a with scissors. Boy. Have you? Did you see the story that was in the news a couple of weeks ago? I think it was recent, where Tom Cruise was talking about how he'd been offered the part. No, who was telling the story? Is Tim Burton telling the story? Tom Cruise is offered the part, and he meets with Tim Burton to talk about it. He's like, I just can't get over. This guy's such a weirdo. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's mostly like, wait, his hands are scissors. Yes. So how does he go to the bathroom? Well, Tom, the movie probably won't address that. Well, I, th- I just think we have to grapple with this. People are going to want to know. Like, So the point might be that Tom Cruise did not make that movie, and therefore Johnny Depp became a star, all because Tom Cruise thought the movie should have more about Edward Scissorhands and how he wipes. You know, if you watch Ed- Edward Scissorhands closely, he does use the, the, uh, the, flat? the dull, flat top of the scissor to manipulate things that he doesn't want to cut. Yes, there's he so much you can do. Sometimes he just oops, forgets, and cuts it things. Cuts but, off Winona Ryder's head. Yeah, but he does use he does use the 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 the, the dull side. So he could conceivably, you know, like pee at least using the dull side of the scissor to to keep from like like peeing on his shoes. Am I remembering right that in that movie, he's such a shrinking violet that it's a plot point that he gets bullied by Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah. But Anthony Michael Hall, when but, he was like a super buff, but he's now a roided up. And yeah, but this still, was, still, he was he's, trying, he's below Anthony Michael Hall on the bullying, uh, 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 
food chain. This was right at that moment when Anthony Michael Hall was like, I'm tired of playing a geek. I'm going to reinvent myself as a big movie star. And then nobody wanted it. By the transitive property, that means he's also getting bullied there by Judd Nelson, Emilio Estevez, everybody. Everybody bullies Edward Scissorhands. You know, the reason Tim Burton got his start was uh, Pee Wee Herman Right. Loved his little weird story about his hot dog. Frank and Weenie. And then... Uh, and then <laughs> I think you're giving people the wrong idea about <laughs> Tim Burton's artistic origins. And then had him do uh, Pee-wee's Great Adventure. So it's it's really, you know... We, Pee-wee we, Herman we, later canceled by a story about his little hot dog. That's exactly right. Full circle. We lost so much when we canceled Pee-wee Herman. Huge mistake. Think about all the great culture that would have come out of of that amazing, gifted little angel. Well, would the third movie, would his Home Alone 3 have been more like Pee-wee's Big Adventure or more like Big Top Pee-wee? Because therein mm. lies the problem. Well, may- What if it's diminishing returns every time Pee-wee Herman makes a movie? Maybe it would have been cross-collateralized with Batman, the first two Batman movies, and then there would have been a, like a Pee-wee Batman vibe. Pretty hot when you think about it. <sighs> yeah, I mean, Pee-wee Herman really... Um, he really advanced the gang of America by somewhere between 10 and 20 years. Um, <laughs> oh, God bless him. And Tim Burton's Batman was kind of pushing back on that. It took Joel Schumacher to really gay it up, to really gay up Batman. Um, but Christmas traditions at your house, I remember uh, you do put gifts in people's shoes. <laughs> we don't usually. You did that one time? We're like old world immigrants. <laughs> yes. My wife, Geppetto, often... Uh, <laughs> I came over to your house one time during the Christmas season and there were gifts in my shoes I feel like when I we, left. We had a Christmas party that year and oh. it turned out it, I think Mindy realized it was the day of St. Wenceslas or something. Or something. <laughs> and she was like, this is great. I'm going to make crawler. Mm-hmm. And uh, when people leave, they're going to find that there's a gift in their shoe, just like they do in Dubrovnik, yes. Dusseldorf, Krakow. I don't know where this, I can't remember what the day was. And my shoes were full of coal. Is that true? Spiders, yeah. Is that true? She was trying to send me a message. We have a special, yeah, we have a special (laughs) box of Christmas stuff that says heretics on it. (laughs) And it's all the leftover plastic spiders and mood rings from Halloween. Heretics. No, we think they'll like that. That's me every time. Uh, What about you guys? My sister is, you know, like a full-grown woman now, but she has retained a love of Christmas. A childlike love of Christmas? A childlike love of Christmas. And, of course, I have a child who also has a childlike love of Christmas. And my child's mother also has a a more sophisticated but still fairly childlike love of Christmas. My mom and I are both Christmas cranks. We're we're Krampuses. Christmas with the Krampuses cranks. After my sister left home in her 30s. Uh, my mom and I realized we didn't have to celebrate Christmas anymore. The tyranny is over. And so for years, we went to get Chinese food on Christmas. That's appropriation. And hang out with all my Jewish friends down at uh, at the Chinese restaurant that, that we only ever went to. There, As you know, Chinatown is full of great restaurants. We patronize many of them. This one is only open on Christmas. It was one that we only went to on Christmas. It's only open then. It's a themed Chinese restaurant open oh, one day a year. One day a year. TGIC. In here, it's Christmas. It was wonderful. And then I had a child and it was, and I was reminded, and then my sister returned and reminded us, you cannot, uh, you Somehow cannot deny Palpatine Christmas. Palpatine returned. <laughs> and I said, Bearing a bag no. of gifts. And it was such a heartbreak that first Christmas, because, you know, infant daughter, she doesn't care. 
and I was getting railroaded into all this Mannheim steamroller Christmas baloney. And I've, I've, you were getting steamhole, steam, steamrolled into Trans-Siberian Rail Orchestra I was, Railroad. I was steamholed into being steamrolled <laughs> by C.W. McCall. And now I'm fully back. I'm all the way vested in, in Mannheim steamroller Christmas. Yeah, as you, got, you as you mentioned, you walked in today, and that it's all Christmas here. It's uh, I mean, we're recording this. It's not even December, John. I know. This is like a, your house is now a Costco. Yeah. That Christmas is up when other holidays are still being celebrated. No, no, no. We're past Thanksgiving, and and this year it was decided that we were tired of setting up Christmas on December fifteenth, and then losing that precious two weeks of early December Christmas celebrating. <clears throat> Uh, and so we were all, like, all, think of all the nutcracker looking at yeah. that could happen all the in fudge. those two weeks. And I am convinced that the more fudge, the better, right? So, so in that sense, they've got me, they've got me by the short hairs. I was at the trainer. I was at the gym a couple weeks ago and my trainer says, well, you know, and I think this is a message to me, you know, the average American gains seven pounds over the holidays. Oh, your trainer said this. And I said, well, first of all, there's no way that's possibly true. Seven pounds. Think how much. Think how much fudge you would have to eat. More than seven pounds. Think how many latkes and gelt and Kwanzaa goodies and uh, what do the Scandinavians eat? Lutefisk. Mm-hmm. Sugarfisk. Lingonberries and crawler. I think, you know, there's no way. He's, he's Every person gaining no weight, there's somebody out there getting 14 pounds in, in a, on a month. Well, it's personal trainer cult, right? Because New, New Year's Day, they're out there saying, come on. Yeah. Come on in. Let's lose those. Uh, let's lose those. Uh, I was trying to make it um, alliterative. The something mm-hmm. seven. The, the what's that Christmas word that starts with samurai us? seven? No, the I don't think samurai is a very good Christmas word. Sultide seven. Saint Wenceslas. Yeah. seven. There you go. That's not that great. Uh, yeah, what they want you to do is buy a year membership on January second, and then stop going on January seventh. It does pencil out for them. Yeah. Um. But you know, there are a lot of Christmas traditions around the world that I that I wanted to celebrate uh, in this the episode that we're doing the closest to the Christmas holiday, the spirit of internationalism. And you know, we've talked before about the Catalonian uh, pooping man, and also the CPM, the the, uh, the pooping log. Um, we've we mentioned. Do we, do we only do Christmas traditions with poop in them? Yeah, there, a lot of them have poop. We talked about Krampus. We talk about Krampus quite a bit. Um, there are the mummers who dress like weird, spooky ghosts. There are the Welsh people that put horses' skulls on their heads. Um, Is that there, real? Yeah. There are a lot of Germans that dress like murder bushes. Um, a lot of Christmas traditions involve... Serial killers, it sounds uh, like. Murderers, yeah. People that come to grab your children and take them away. There are some witches... Uh, that actually eviscerate bad children to see if they're if they are, have ungrateful stomachs. I mean, honestly, this is all as divorced from any actual Christian content as a as a yeah. red man in a fur suit. Oh yeah, it's coming, all coming it, down your chimney. It's all just why not as pagan as can be. But the question is, why would you choose that if you can have a jolly red man from a Coca Cola ad in Life magazine? Would you choose three German witches? <laughs> I guess. No, but you know we don't live in as much fear of witches as we once did. It is a boom time for horror movies, so why not? Why not Christmas horror? You know the uh, drummer of the Long Winters, Nabil Ayers, whose excellent autobiography um, 
A Life in the Sunshine came out this past year. When we toured Europe at Christmas time, um, Nabil, who identifies as African American, uh, discovered that in some of the northern European countries, Santa's elves All right. are often from Africa. We dis- did we discuss this? I yeah, think we did. this has come up before. And those elves, or those, uh, I think the Dutch actually call them Santa's little black slaves, mm. come steal children and take them to Africa. And Nabil, uh, obviously, became very fascinated by this. And started stealing children on Christmas Eve. What he did was take photographs of every example as we went, you know, on tour. So we're, we're all across the country and, and Santa and his, and his, uh, his black, uh, elves often portrayed by Dutch people in blackface. Yeah. It's all, and even the, the drawings are all very minstrelsy. Yeah. Um, and Nabil just, uh, boy, it had a profound effect on him. We talked about it a lot on tour, let's just say. Um, and when we talked about it with Dutch people, they were very, uh, sensitive about it. They were like, well, it's tradition. So let's just. Let's just change the subject. Let's just move on. And we were like, no, but it's a weird tradition, don't you think? And they were like, no, not really. Just sort of a tradition anyway. That is a funny thing about <laughs> progressive Europe is that there's really no way to grapple with your various racist toothpastes yeah. and elves. Yeah, pretty pretty, pretty crazy. A real eye-opener. Um, but as I went down the list of all of the different uh, Christmas traditions, I realized every country has super bananas, often terrifyingly uh, violent or weird. And, um, and I started to get creeped out and I, and I wanted a, I wanted a friendly, I want a hooga Christmas. Yeah. You said, yeah. Something that, that, uh, that makes Christmas, uh, that puts the fun back in, in funmas, puts the mass back in Christmas. Yeah. Seven, seven pounds of mass. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're very into holiday foods, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Turkey dinner is your favorite food. I love turkey dinner. You want a cozy, homegrown, crackling fire kind of a Christmas vibe. Oh, the one Christmas tradition that my mom and I did maintain, and that we maintain to this day, is her famous Welsh rarebit with ham that she pre- prepares every Does, Christmas morning. Doesn't that take away the Welsh part? I think the idea of eating a cheese and bread appetizer and calling it Welsh, the implication is it's for, the Welsh are for are poor. Yeah, well, but you and I are Welsh people that have made it. We've risen above <laughs> we our, have, our coal mining station. We can put ham on our biscuits and wow. cheese. And so um, so for years, she would, and weirdly, you know, this is a very inexpensive meal that you could make any time. But Me? I, well, any of us. But I was raised to believe you could only have it on Christmas morning. And it never occurred to me that you could make it at any time of the year until I was, I think, in my late 30s. And I said, wait a minute. I love this meal. I love my Welsh rarebit with ham. I could make it in June. I could make it in September. You could um, make it with a fox. But I was uh, but I was tied to my mother's recipe she made it (laughs) she made it seem like only she knew how to make the secret (laughs) cheese sauce and eventually when she got into her mid-80s she said one year i'm tired of making this christmas meal i'm going to teach you how to make it 
Did it turn out to just be a very simple roux with cheddar cheese in it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it was not hard at all to make. And in fact, I realized that my cheese sauce is more reliable and good than hers ever was. So that is one thing. Now I make the Welsh rarebit with ham. I feel like this lesson could be applied to any Christmas tradition. There's no reason you can't set up a pine tree in your living room in June also. Whoa. You could trade cookies with your neighbors in March. Whoa. Just blow your mind. Well, that will figure into our story today. As I ca- well, as I cast about looking for Christmas traditions that did not involve blood sacrifice. Or Mariah Carey. That, that were not uh, just a carryover, uh, like with a very thin veneer of Christianity put over some awful pagan drowning ritual or, uh, or like child stealing. I happened upon the great nation of Japan— a place where uh, the omnibus often focuses its loving eye. It's true. We had their preppy clothes. Mm-hmm. We had their fanciful inventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think what other. We had their love of baseball. Mm-hmm. We're kind of Japanophiles. We're yeah. we're we're weeaboos on this show. We are. We super are. And and that's let's not do like a- six shows about Sailor Moon <laughs> in the new year. We haven't even uh, ever discussed the fact that we both have waifu pillows, <laughs> uh, except they're with members of BTS. Yes, are those do those count as waifus if it's members of BTS? Yeah, even though they're from Korea, it's still a waifu if you cuddle up with it and and have that relationship be waifus in the eye of the beholder more important than your actual human relationships. Got it. Um, and it turns out, uh, despite the fact that less than 1% of Japanese are Christians, the Japanese celebrate Christmas, uh, and it is, by all accounts, a very fun time in Japan. Does because, it borrow from our Western Christmas iconography? We often think of them as, as borrowers of, uh, of Western tropes. Yes, it, it does, uh, and in some ways it takes all the fun... Out of Christmas. And and none of the somber or, you know, like, there's always, when you were a kid and the tree was decorated, did you turn off the lights and sit and think about the baby Jesus? I think we would turn off the lights. I don't know if we would think about the baby Jesus. So I was not particularly raised to be Christian, although my mom took us to Methodist Church because that was the church she grew up in, and she felt like you can't be in a... You can't be a white kid in America without a little bit of Christian time. So I didn't spend any time thinking about God, um, except as a, you know, as a rap lyric. I mean, around Christmas, the problem is a lot of the best art has God in it. Yeah. A lot of the, you know, I I would say Hark the Herald Angels Sing, every bit as strong as uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And, And as you recall, and this may be hard for our younger listeners to believe... Um, not hard for our European listeners to believe because even though they're even in the most secular democracies in Europe, they still have 42 Christian holidays per more, month, more angels per square inch than any other Christmas. It's amazing. And they treat them like bank holidays, except, you know, it's like the festival of, of St. Uh, what's his butt? Michael, the dragon slayer. But, uh, here in the United States in the 1970s, when I was a child, the, the, uh, popular media, the three main television stations and then the public broadcasting system, all the newspapers, all the cartoons, all the news, everything. Uh, it was very heavy duty dripping with Christian piety as a kind of just 
this is the Norman Rockwell American story. All you have to do is look Wait, at really? a Charlie Brown Christmas. But that's, to me, that's the exception, not the rule. No, no, like the no. The sitcom Christmas episodes are are rarely about. I guess they might have miracles. Well, eighties ones, yes, but in the seventies, there was still an awful lot of hymns like, being presented as just like this is just regular. Did Jesus give Fonzie a motorcycle yeah, or something? That type of thing. Middle class America. It was just sort of like you couldn't be irreverent about Christmas yet, hmm. and so Fonzie couldn't. You couldn't have a. You couldn't have a Christmas episode where people like took the piss out of Christmas. They put the piss back in Christmas. Pissmas. <laughs> so it's actually it's sentiment more than dogma. I, it was just that uh, it was the holdover from the kind of early twentieth century feeling that American America. It's the constant fight, right? And I think this is the 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 conservative um, that weird conservative feeling that America has lost something by drifting away from its old traditions. Just the idea that you, you saluted the flag and at Christmas time, everybody briefly thought about the baby Jesus and then could get on with it, you know, but there wasn't a feeling, no one said bupkis about any other holiday at the time. I guess America was founded by Puritans who probably would have burned someone for celebrating Christmas. The North of America was celebrated by Puritans. The South, they were all getting drunk and, and, yeah. and shagging. Big punch bowls. Yeah. Um, so I remember sitting in the living room with my mom and turning off the Christmas lights and feeling the spirit of God and the baby Jesus and wondering, wondering feeling, the, feeling the spooky... You know, the spooky action at a distance of, like, the ghostly other. I've heard you use that phrase to uh, convey many things. Yes, spooky action but at never, a distance. But never is, the Holy Ghost. That's one, of my, uh, that's one of my catchphrases. I use it to talk about anything that I can't see because I have no object permanence. We were at uh, Disneyland last month for one of my kids' birthdays, and we'd never been around the holidays before. So there's a holiday parade, you know. there's a, a And they say holiday, and that does mean there's a place where you can— uh, there, You know, we walked by a klezmer band playing, I'm sure— uh, Hanukkah favorites. Yeah, and there was a play, a craft place where you could choose to make a, a a Kwanzaa coloring project instead of or a Diwali one or whatever instead of a Christmas one. But really, holiday at Disneyland means Christmas signifiers. Ding, 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 it means trees and ding, ding, boughs and hollies and bells and candles and. But the funny thing is, it, it does not mean it expressly does not include Jesus, right? Which means. You watch the holiday parade go by, and and Mickey and uh, the princesses and whoever else are dancing to kind of Disneyfied. Uh, it's almost like you, they set an artificial intelligence to write. They they fed in a bunch of Christmas songs and a bunch of Disney songs, and they were like produce a version of this that has no actual theological content. I one hundred percent believe that they have teams that, of computers. Such an algorithm. Yeah, the songs just sound like because they have things like you know they're just kind of a mishmash of of nice sentiments you know wonder and dreams and you know the hopes of children can mm. come true children look at things this time of year i don't yes, know if you've do. heard and there's a spirit of wonder yeah. there's a spirit yeah. we don't know what it's a spirit of you know of wonder the, the, well the things are even kind of light on on peace and goodwill toward men which you'd think would be kind of Easy. good universal choices here instead it really is more like yeah childlike wonder and boy they're sure gingerbread when you think about it, and a candy cane on every bow, 
and a lot of buying. Yeah, we're not meant to ent- exactly <laughs> and and paying whatever it costs to go to Disneyland now, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And there's never any interrogation of uh, of even the the kind of the general peace, goodwill toward men, right. the stuff that Scrooge learns. It's really kind of it's been watered down to. Boy, there sure is a a twinkly spirit, isn't there? <laughs> well, this might be an example of. Oh, look, it's snowing again. You'll never get home to your weird house on a super steep hill. I actually moved my car down to a part of the super steep hill that's not super steep, just in case it's stuck. I know you do that every every time. The that's my Christmas tradition. Weird. Yeah, moving my car a street down. Move your car down to the flats. Um, uh, this may be an example of Disney actually taking culture back from Japan. Mm. You know, we think about Japanese, uh, the westernization of Japan and Western uh, uh, co-optation by the Japanese as a thing that came post-American occupation. Yeah. Um, But in fact, from the time Admiral Perry opened Japan in the 1850s, um, the westernization, the Japanese assimilation of of certain aspects of Western culture happened, you know, started happening immediately. It was um, it was truly a a cross cultural exchange because you know J- Japan was never a colony, and so it was what what uh, what it was. I mean, opening Japan was opening it to trade, and that trade went both ways. And the cultural impact went both ways, too, because mm-hmm. they'd never seen our stuff, we'd never seen their stuff, and everyone was delighted. Yes. Europe loved their... Art Nouveau. Their, yeah, their Asian-accented arts and crafts, and they loved our what? Well, all kinds of things. You know, one of the, one of the things that happened within the first 20 years was that uh, Japan adopted the Gregorian calendar. Hmm. Um, up until that point, the Japanese calendar was a thing that that changed quite a bit. It, uh, every kind of successive empire would try and adopt a different calendar, and you would think, for uh, you know, for being such a uh, inventive and also technologically oriented culture, they would have settled on a calendar, but they kept monkeying with it. In fact, the calendar that they used up until the 1870s, um, as the days grew shorter, uh, the the number of hours in the day stayed the same, but the hours actually changed in length <laughs> to reflect the the different amount of daylight. So, you know, shorter days meant shorter daytime hours, longer nighttime hours. Does that mean like your school periods also become... Oh, you know, school, 36 minutes school or, being a different thing in Japan in 1872, I think. Uh, your lunch break shrinks. Let's just say it was fairly confusing. And it was based around a, a sort of quasi-lunar schedule. So it was it there were a lot of problems. And so uh, one of the things that one of the technologies they adopted was uh, a Western calendar. And that meant that New Year's, which had formerly been kind of a lunar mobile holiday mm-hmm. uh, uh, became January 1st and um, and they you know they've been celebrating the same new year as San Francisco since the 1870s that's a real degree of engagement with the 
with the newly arriving culture is to be like, you know what? We're just going to change our months. Yeah. That's how, that's how into modernization we are. Yeah. Right. And, and some months based on, uh, some Roman emperors. When you, when you look at how long it took America or has taken America to even get on board with the metric system, it's, it's really amazing (laughs) that this country within, you know, a few years of learning about the growing calendar is like, all right, we're scrapping our old months. They were good, but this is the future guys. When it comes to personal hygiene, you know what I hate, John? Reading the long list of ingredients on the bottle? Oh, I was going to say when someone throws it at your head at great speed. But yes, I also hate when there's a long list of multi-polysyllabic ingredients I've never heard of on the back of the bottle. It doesn't instill a ton of trust, especially when you're going to put this on your body. I'm just going to have this stuff on my skin all day, and it sounds like it came from a military-industrial defense factory i i what if it just had what if it just had a series of ingredients that i've heard of and understand coconut oil shea butter baking soda well have i got a solution for you is there a deodorant like that that's thoughtfully formulated to keep me feeling and smelling fresh all day long i'm gonna suggest to you that you try native personal care products every native product is thoughtfully formulated to keep you feeling and smelling Fresh all day. That's exactly what I just said. Thank you for confirming that word for word. <laughs> You're more than welcome, Ken. Native, uh, you might already know, as uh, producing aluminum-free deodorant. Yeah. Native keeps their ingredients bare naked. Like you might be when you put on their deodorant. Mm-hmm. These it are pr- ingredients that you understand. Like some of the ones you listed. Coconut oil. <laughs> shea butter. <laughs> And baking soda. Are you saying it has coconut oil, shea butter, and baking soda? Native deodorant checks a lot of the boxes, Ken. Provides 72-hour odor protection. It has naturally derived ingredients and a smooth, residue-free application. Here's what I like. They have new and limited edition scents all the time. Native uh, sends us the new scents sometimes, and I just like to pop it open and take a whiff. You love to smell spicy, don't you? Well, for autumn, they had like warm cider and cinnamon, like a kind of a limited edition scent. They had cashmere and rain, Hmm. which smelled not unlike cashmere combined with rain. Wow. Toasted marshmallow, vanilla, wildwood, and cardamom. This makes me want to like go camping in the woods, just just naming these flavors. Well, that's the thing about me. I like to smell fresh and clean, but also woodsy. Well, native, it sounds like this native uh, cabin, limited edition cabin line is for you. I encourage everyone out there to make the switch from their antiperspirant to native. We, John and I both love receiving these flavorful, fresh scents every so often. And these new seasonal ones smell amazing. While you're on their site, you can discover all their fresh scents and maybe even try one of their body washes. While you're at it. Why not? Why not save time? So smell and feel fresh all day long with Native. Get 20% off your first order by going to nativedeo.com slash omnibus or use the promo code omnibus at checkout. Try nativedeo.com slash omnibus or use promo code omnibus at checkout to get 20% off your first order. Another kind of strange tradition in Japan is that they're very committed to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, which they, which is like a, it plays a large role in their New Year's celebrations. 
um, because German prisoners during World War I that were interred in Japan brought Beethoven with them, and then the Ninth Symphony during the Imperial years, you know, it's a very martial-sounding. Sure. And, um, and then when the Empire of Japan allied itself with uh, the Nazis during World War II, Beethoven's Ninth was used as a as kind of like a remember. See, we're into German stuff. Yeah, this is this is part of our uh, part of our empire, and so now you you still hear the Ninth Symphony played as part of the kind of winter happy celebrations. New year, happy New Year, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. It's the disco version though from 1977. But Christmas is a holiday celebrated in Japan. Uh, what does that consist of? Well, it is almost entirely minus the titular Christ. It is, there are a lot of festivals of lights in Japan. Different regions have different festivals of lights. Like around the around the dark solstice or just in general? They kind of, the different times of the calendar, you know, a different city will have its festival of light in a different time. But Christmas is a is a, a time of lights. Uh, the Christmas tree is present, really, um, and a lot of Christmas traditions kind of are mm, slightly modified. So Christmas is actually practiced. So they so the three holidays that they uh, that they um, practice. Uh, synchronously with the West are Christmas, New Year's, and Valentine's Day. Ah, Valentine's Day caught on there. And I, I understand Halloween's getting big in Korea. I, I, I learned that from the the terrible crowd crush this year. I think just in our lifetimes, Halloween has spread around the globe and is becoming a global holiday. I was talking to a uh, I was talking to a Korean writer friend, and she was saying a lot of it is the the. Uh, the increasing establishment of queer culture over there, Halloween's often a force of uh, of LGBT pride. Oh, you get to dress and as it enters non-Western cultures. Yeah, and, and party on. Interesting. Uh, Valentine's Day in Japan is not uh, treated the same way as it is in the West. Exactly, it's more of a Sadie Hawkins Day. It's a day to give. It's a day where women can give chocolate to men. Whereas if they did that on February 13th or 15th, they would be executed by the emperor. It would seem really weird to do that uh, at other times hmm. of, the, of the year. I think um, there are different kinds of chocolate that you, I agree. Th- that you give on Valentine's Day. There is the Giri Choco. It's a brand? Well, no. Giri Choco means that um, that is chocolate that you give as an obligation. To your coworkers, ah, I see. You're required to give Giri Choco. <laughs> I like how they're really upfront with the worst thing about office gifts, which is we all know it's like an obligation. Yeah, and then Hongmai Choco is true feelings chocolate oh. that you give to the one that you. It's not expected. But love. It's, I like how they delineate how romantic the chocolate is. Like when somebody gives me chocolate, I'm not like, how horny would you say this gift <laughs> is? This is this romantic chocolate? Uh, because whoa. Look out. You're my, I, you're my mailman. Yeah, I'm looking for Geary Choco here, not Home My Choco. Uh, and then there's Tomo Choco, which is for friends, and Gohobi Choco, which is chocolate that you give yourself. Oh, that's and nice. I, see, and that's where I would spend most of my chocolate dollars. 
And are the are, is it do you buy any chocolate product and then you define it as Geary Choco or whatever, or do you actually shop from a Geary Choco section and stuff is geared toward how it's going to be gifted? I bet you would. I bet that that they are different kinds of chocolate. Just, hmm. just uh, I'm just going out on a limb here. I bet you that you do not that Geary Choco is not the hot chocolate. Right. That there's there are certain kinds of chocolates that are hotter than others. Like it's kind of an erotic bakery kind of item. Yeah, maybe maybe it's not like the erotic bakery in in uh, in Wallingford. R.I.P. Um, it is actually Christmas that is treated like Valentine's Day. Christmas Eve and Christmas are like uh, it's romantic. Yeah, it's the big date night of the year. You, uh, it's the it's like go out. For dinner, it's not really a family holiday. It is a, uh, it's like a, I'm, I'm going to stop short of saying sex party, but it is like the. No, just say it. Say Christmas is a sex party. Christmas in Japan is a sex party. And then we should sample that and make it a ringtone. <laughs> well, hold on. Is, uh, Japan is a sex party. Sex I mean, party. I'm trying to think about how Valentine's Day functions here. It's a big day for, for, um. It's even Valentine's Day is even a romantic let's go out night and maybe even more so for like established couples. Right. It's the night that that forty year olds go out to to PF Chang's as uh, much as as much as it is. Oh, I've got a new I've got a new boyfriend. What should we do? The thing is, like, if you're on Tinder, and I'm just guessing because I've never been on Tinder. You're guessing that I'm on Tinder. If if you were on Tinder. It would be because you were trying to get to TikTok and your uh, Google <laughs> search auto-completed. Or I misremembered <laughs> which, which, one is it? which young person social platform is which. I want to see some dancing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you, surely you've heard a story of somebody that was that uh, went on a date or set up a date or it was a blind date and then they realized it was Valentine's Day. Right. And how awkward that would be because the holiday is imbued with such weird commercial significance totemic power there is not that same pressure i don't think although who will i go out with on christmas yeah although maybe maybe there is it's just not i don't know if you're supposed to buy anybody a diamond bracelet from from jared but how does this overlap with the whatever else they've they've seen in our commercials the the pine boughs and the candles and whatnot it all is just uh it's pretty decorative and festive the actual family holiday the the sincere holiday is new year's eve mm. and new year's day in those those are the holidays that's that, the big get together multi-generational yeah unlike ours which is that's the big go get drunk singles night uh mania holiday they turned valentine's day into new year's new year's into christmas and christmas into valentine's day that's right they flipped the switch is uh and i guess that's the, it makes sense new year's is the big gift giving holiday too kids with their Getting envelopes of cash from grandpa. Or yeah, whatever. envelopes to, uh, of cash, which are called otoshidama. Oshitu, oshi, otoshidama, yeah, otoshidama. Let the record show you, lift, you lifted your glasses. I did. And, I, and looked at your, your uh, transliterated Japanese more closely. I have, a, I have an eye doctor appointment in a couple of days because I can't, there's no position I can put my glasses in where I can see anything anymore. Maybe one lens in, one out? Yeah, maybe. That's a good idea. Something to try. Uh, it's also a day uh, where uh, the tradition is to send postcards, Ninga postcards, to one another. And the Japanese post office, it's the busiest day of the year for this, the Japanese post office. This is New Year's or Christmas? New Year's. Huh. If you write the word Ninga on a postcard, the Japanese post office 
guarantees that they will deliver it on New Year's Day. Whether it's stamped or not. I think it has to be stamped. Oh, okay. But it's a day, you know, and, and so these postcards, like, it gives you a chance to show off your calligraphy and the postcard. And there are, of course, because it's Japan, there are various different uh, levels of well-wish yeah. that you can write on the card. Are these closer to, like, thank you cards or is it analogous to our Christmas letter? Is this like is yeah. this like the yearly check-in with all your friends and acquaintances? Yeah, it's a Christmas Christmas card, huh. but it's a but it's a, a postcard. Yeah. And then there's a there's a very heavy uh tradition which is that at on you know at midnight although it has to start several minutes before midnight I think uh they ring all the bells 108 times 108 108 times for all 108 temptations in Shinto Buddhism I was going to ask if it was, a, it was a propitious number but in fact it's a it's an ominous number. Are they trying to ward off the temptations? Yeah, or, I think so. Ward or are they off saying, temptations. I see. And I think there's. I think the idea is that you ring the bells 108 times, 107 times in the past year, and then the last time, the 108th time, uh, at the stroke or one second after the stroke of midnight. 108 temptations. Do you which, know offhand what they are? Well, I would list all 108, but you know they're just the usual temptations, just split up. Split up. W- ones that I would consider a single temptation, um, they have to it's kind like, of divide it into. It's like uh, throwing dirt on your neighbor's lawn, throwing paper on your neighbor's lawn, <laughs> throwing shards of earthenware on your neighbor's lawn. You know, some of us say hentai, but there are like 70 kinds of hentai. <laughs> Is that what they're doing? Ringing a bell for once for each of the different kinds kind of, of hentai? Once for each subcategory on Reddit. For each weird kind of porn that the West doesn't have, the bell will ring once. But one of the, uh, one of the biggest Christmas traditions, and one that I can really get behind, is the Kentucky Fried Chicken Bucket Dinner. I've heard of this. This is like an ad campaign gone out of control, right? Well, yes. Um, it's an ad campaign, but one that coincided with the global, uh, one might say, some might say ambassadorship, some might say uh, pestilent virus, some might say... Yeah. Ca- Imperialist uh, colonizing. Right, some might say uh, capitalism at its finest. But in the early 1970s, the American fast food franchise enterprise uh, decided to become a global phenomenon. All these, all the, the they American, all got together. They all got together and in they a, said, in a French fry grease filled room. You know what? We're not fully taking advantage of the Taco Bell brand. Um, McDonald's, of course, being the, the, uh, the largest and most famous sort of American cultural fast food ambassador. Um, the McDonald's now in everywhere. Almost uh, there. There are maps that show uh, the countries in the world that do not have a McDonald's. Is it Russia now, though? It's a small minority, and now McDonald's has pulled out of Russia, but. Remember what a big deal it was when that first one opened in yeah. Red Square? I never thought I would live to see it close. Billy Joel got in there and had a 
grand cheeseburger. Has Billy Joel also not been back to, to Moscow since the war started? Back to Moscow. He used to live there, and then he's like, "Nope, I'm moving back to Long Island. This war with Ukraine is just a, a bridge too far for me." Billy Joel. My sense is that the McDonald's in the McDonald'ses in uh, Russia have now all reopened, rebranded as King Burger or something. King probably King, not King Burger. King Tut Burger. Czar Czar, Czar uh, Big Macca. And I, they may be they may be doing you know in the same way that Russia is attempting to build new tanks without ever having fully understood how to build a tank without Western machines. They're also trying to make McDonald's hamburgers re- without... Reversing engineer yeah, the full fries from scratch. They don't have all the machines. But, um, but Kentucky Fried Chicken is, it may surprise you to learn, the second biggest... American food franchise globally. That doesn't surprise me at all. Really? I had a first, I had a front row seat for watching American fast food franchises move into Asia. Mm -hmm. Usually, you know, joint ventures with local outfits. And my dad was working at the Korean law firm that like, that like did a lot of those deals. So he'd come home and be like, good news guys, Shakey's is opening this summer. And we'd be like, really Shakey's? Well, I've heard Wendy's is coming next fall. He he knew what was going to happen. Yeah, right. And KFC was always very early in a lot of these places. I think because, uh, you know, the the affordability and availability of chicken um, is a lot easier in the supply chains of a lot of these countries, or at least was back when this franchising happened. And it didn't come with all the taboos of we're going to serve you beef. Mm. which was a problem in big chunks of the world. Like almost no matter where you're, you're, if you're in the Muslim world, if you're in the Far East, if you're in India, no matter where you're opening your fast food chain, if all you're serving is battered chicken, you're probably okay dietary-wise, and you can probably serve it for like a price point the students will pay. Right. And fried chicken actually is already a, a common food in, in Japan and Korea, karaage or karaage. Does that, pre- does that predate the arrival? Like, were they were already frying chickens before? Yeah. Oh, man, frying chickens. I mean, everybody loves to fry a chicken. I mean, the thing about fried chicken is no one dislikes it. Yeah. It's the best food. It's pretty good. KFC first arrived in, uh, in Japan in 1970 as a co-brand or as a, as a um, yeah, like, basically it was a subsidiary of Mitsubishi. <laughs> and Mitsubishi started uh you know said like okay let's let's give this a try and this was this was the, the compact car and fried chicken <laughs> uh uh consolidated uh enterprise. This was the this was sort of the dawn of of this and you're absolutely right in the 80s and 90s when you were in Korea 80s mostly, right? Yeah. That was that was really like the heyday of this. Because there were all these other Asian tiger countries, you know, all these places were trying to get into Taiwan, then eventually the Philippines, then eventually Thailand, Indonesia, blah, blah, blah. Right now, the, the country with the, the second most KFCs is China. Huh. So KFC has, has successfully, you know, there are like, I don't know, tens of thousands of Kentucky Fried Chickens in China. A lot of people don't realize that Colonel Sanders... Um, uh, his backstory is very colorful. First of all, Harlan Sanders is from Indiana, mm-hmm. not Kentucky. And he spent a lot of his life in Indiana. 
his not he, wearing a white suit. He did not have a white suit until until well along. He was wearing normal brown and gray suits. Imagine if you see Colonel Sanders and he's just a little bit younger and sexier than you expect and he's wearing like a charcoal suit. Yeah, just like a regular suit. What the heck? There are some hilarious pictures of Har- Harlan Sanders just dressed like a guy. Um, I'm he, Googling right now. Harlan Sanders dressed <laughs> like a guy. He was born in 1890. He, um, as a young man, he got a job on the railroad at the age of 16 as a fireman on the railroad. He was fired from that job for uh, being insubordinate to his superiors and was transferred to, he got a different job on the Illinois Central Railroad. Um, where he was fired for brawling with his coworkers. Wow. He He's then, a troublemaker. Yeah. He then went to law school by mail, uh, became That's a lawyer, <laughs> and then uh, was uh, basically disgraced by uh, because he got into a brawl in the courtroom with his own client. Wow. He had demons. And so he ended up, uh, he was disgraced. He moved in with his moved back in with his mother at the age of thirty. He started selling life insurance, and he was fired from that job again for insubordination. This is like one of these inspiring things where you read about how somebody failed a million times, and that man was Abraham Lincoln. That's right. This is like some grind culture thing. In the twenties, he um, he started a ferry across the Ohio River from Indiana to Louisville, Kentucky, and this is basically mm. the first time Kentucky had, appears. He discovered it. In his, in his story, he's already 30 years old. Um, and then he, the, the, he's bad at business, and he kind of gets loses his ferry job. He is, starts, he, is he still brawling with passengers? Pretty, pretty, he's pretty, still pretty rowdy. He throws somebody in the Ohio River every week or two. He starts selling tires for Michelin. Then he gets into the service station game. He's, he runs a service station, a standard oil service station until the depression where he loses everything. Then he starts a shell station, uh, during the thirties. And this guy moves back home with his mom every six years. He, he starts selling fried chicken, um, at his shell station. He'd always been reputedly a good cook, starts selling fried chicken, um, as a way of attracting you know, this is like what sets his shell station apart from the other shell stations. He has a competitor by the name of Matt Stewart, and he and Matt Stewart get into a shootout. What? Uh, and Matt Stewart... Is this like the service station across the highway? Yeah, yeah. competitors. <laughs> Matt Stewart kills one of uh, his employees. What? Gets sentenced to jail for murder, and that is, and that eliminates his competition. It's a gang war. This yeah. is his rise to power. And so then his shell station... I think Sanders orchestrated it. ...continues to cook along. Uh, he is first awarded, an, an award you and I know quite well, uh, awarded a Kentucky colonelship... Like us. ...in 1935. But um, somehow uh, those businesses all hit the skids. He's actually... He does a stint in Seattle during the war. He lived here. Just doing, you know, God knows what. Was he frying stuff? He was frying stuff, as you do. And it was only in the, um, and then he go, and then he ends up opening a chicken restaurant with his wife. He divorced his original wife and had a, had a, his like a mistress. He hired his mis- mistress and then 
then remarried or then married her after he divorced his wife. And they started a chicken restaurant that was again popular, but somehow he ran it also into the ground. And it was, it was in the sixties when the idea of franchising his chicken recipe, um, franchise was on, on everybody's mind. And oh he, yeah, in the '60s, people just couldn't shut up about chicken franchise. That's right, and he inarguably had a great chicken re- a chicken recipe. And he started franchising it. You could sell. Um, he was he was again award he was re awarded a Kentucky colonelship in the '50s, and started calling himself the Colonel. And everybody sort of laughingly went along with it, like, "Oh, sure, Colonel." Well, he didn't have a weird Slavic accent like Colonel Tom Parker. Yeah, and he had. He then he started wearing the white suits. He actually dyed his hair and beard white. No. That was all. That was all just a. It <laughs> was all a total Indiana put on. Uh, the first KFC franchise, I believe, is still extant, and it's in Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places. One hundred percent true. You drive by it on the highway, and it's like this is the historic. You know how people come here, and it's a line of Chinese tourists going to the first Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah, there's a similar, except with no line. There's a similar <laughs> sign for the historic first KFC. Yeah, the first KFC was in was in uh, Salt Lake City, and he made this franchise deal where uh, where you would give him four cents per chicken if you used his special sauce, his special special recipe. Four cents per chicken sold. Four cents per chicken. It's an odd deal, but okay. It's a pretty good deal. I mean, considering these are sixty cents, um, and by the time he's 65 years old, um, he's been, uh, well, you know, that was in the 50s. So he he gets to be kind of a, uh, like retirement age or past, and he decides to sell his chicken franchise to, uh, to a big corp. Huh. But they keep him on as mascot? They keep him on as a salaried chicken chicken seller. And he loves to travel and he he makes the rounds. He's happier being a goodwill ambassador than he ever was in any of his real jobs. I guess I would be too. If you offered me two jobs, one where you have to work and one where you can just be a chicken ambassador. Wave mm-hmm. in a white suit. Well, when he sold his franchise, he actually kept the rights to Canada. He sold KFC rights for the world, except for Canada. And at some point in the 60s, he and his wife moved to Ontario, where they lived until he died in 1980. So Colonel Sanders, Mr. Kentucky, (laughs) basically, you know, like lived out the rest of his life in Ontario. KFC means like Kitchener fried chicken. So he, it was, uh, so KFC was bought by PepsiCo and then PepsiCo at some point along the way, spun off yum right yum brands which is which <laughs> went through many incarnations but is basically kfc pizza hut taco Bell. that's why you can see one of those hybrid buildings that somehow has all three those, abom- right. those abominations of nature and they really do that they they go around the world and they're like could we what uh, what if we put a taco bell in this kfc the first time i ever saw one of those was in poland I was like, whoa, KFC. It wasn't and Taco Bell. Taco Bell? Yeah. Oh, I was assuming it was going to be Pizza Hut. It's Taco Bell? They, well, they tried. I'm not sure how well that went over. In, <laughs> in, uh, but anyway, so in 1970, uh, in partnership with Mitsubishi, they opened a KFC, a Kentucky Fried Chicken at the time, in Osaka for their World Expo. 
it did well enough that they decided, uh, Mitsubishi decided, you know, let's, let's move forward with this. Um, but there was a conflict. The American fast fooders, the American side of the company said, look, these do great in the suburbs. We want to put KFCs throughout suburban Japan. And Mitsubishi said, the suburbs of Japan are not like the suburbs of the United States. Right. Uh, these are not going to fly in the suburbs. They didn't. And so Mitsubishi then kind of took the reins and said, we're going to put these in urban centers. These are going to be takeout restaurants in urban centers. I still remember the first time I ever saw an urban McDonald's as a kid. And I think it was probably in a town. It's probably, it probably not in the U.S. It was probably in Hong Kong or something. And I was like, you guys, you go, you eat at the order this McDonald's and then you go upstairs or downstairs to eat. I couldn't. Because, you know, in the States, they're yeah. just in big sprawling wastelands with, with a play place outside. Where you can crawl inside Mary McCheese's head. Right, but these were like downtown Mickey D's. This is crazy. There's salary men eating here. So there was a uh, there was a manager by the name a manager of this company by the name of Takashi Okawara. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know what? Let's really push this party bucket idea as a Christmas thing. He they, know, they were already saying, bring home a bucket with all your friends. And finger licking good and all the so forth. But he had, you know, uh, rubbed shoulders with enough American expatriates to know that at Christmas, they were looking for a turkey dinner. There was no turkey dinner to be found. Oh. And Kentucky Fried Chicken was the closest you could get. It's our fault for eating poultry at the holidays. And you've heard my story, and I'm sure I've told it on, uh, I told it on our pro wrestling episode, where... My first Thanksgiving I spent away from home was at a professional wrestling match in Minneapolis. Oh, yeah, you just wandered into a stadium. And I went and got some Kentucky Fried Chicken and carried it into the stadium with me. That's your Japanese soul. To have my, uh, to have my turkey dinner. So KFC exploded in Japan in the— Oh, in, no, they burned down the chicken men no, in, in Philly they did last not. night? They loved— Oh, it exploded, exploded in a good in way. Exploded in a good way. Um, by— the by the nineteen end of the nineteen seventies they had a hundred KFCs. By the eighties they had almost four hundred, and by the nineties there were over a thousand. And uh, as far as my very uh, unthorough research indicates, there are uh, way more than those now. But you know all the uh, all the how many KFCs in Japan? It's like how many angels on the head of a pin. But in this case, it's, a, it's, it's over a, thing a thousand people, angels. People, uh, people, people argue about it. But that is a lot of KFCs. I mean, that's maybe what a third or a quarter or something of the number in the U.S., which is crazy, you know, because Japan's the size of what California probably. You, you, you can't swing a cat in Japan. You can't swing a Totoro without hitting a KFC. Oh, they love to swing cats in Japan. That's another Christmas uh, thing that they, you know, that's maybe less popular here in the United States now. M- most famously of all the American uh, franchises, 7-Eleven is the one that has uh, absolutely become a, a bigger deal in Japan than in the United States. There are over 20,000 7-Eleven convenience stores in Japan. And there, there's like two or three other brands of convenience store that are as omnipresent as 7-Eleven. Like urban life there really revolves around convenience Convenience stores stores. and they have really good fried chicken weirdly fried chicken and so at christmas time so so it was takashi okawara who said let's brand kfc as a christmas 
delicacy. Uh, and they, they, uh, they did this kind of amazing, uh, like iconographic ad campaign where getting a bucket of chicken with your friends was a kind of Valentine like special, this is what brings us all together. We're going to come, you know, kind of those sentimental commercials that really resonated with people. But does it have kind of Santa Christmassy kind of iconography or does it look more like a Valentine's Day ad? Like, um, here's a thing for that special someone. Does it look more like a Jared ad or a, uh, or a, you know, a, a old Navy Christmas ad? Well, what they do is they dress up Colonel Sanders as Santa. Oh, so and, it is kind of Western Christmassy. Yeah, if you if you look, Colonel Sanders looks great as Santa. I mean, he's he stopped uh, his beard is a little trimmed for Santa. He stopped beating up his clients and shooting his service station rivals. <laughs> but, you know, and he wears like fifties horn rim glasses instead of little Santa glasses. But I guess we learned earlier this week that Saint Nicholas used to just punch his yeah, theological rivals. Got into a got into a shootout with all the other people at the Council of Nicaea. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's there's mistletoe and there's uh, f- trees and lights and Santa Clauses, but really getting KFC is like a uh, it so much a tradition that almost four million Japanese people eat Kentucky Fried Chicken on Christmas. The the just the supply chain issues must be insane. Five percent of KFC's annual sales happen in Japan. On Christmas, on that day, people line up for hours. People start. People or, can order in advance their KFC chicken bucket, but uh, fried chicken you can't. You can't make in advance. No, you but know? You, like, you, you, that's, that's got to be. I'm just thinking how hard it is on the kitchens. I can't. I can't imagine. I mean, they must be working. Yeah. Uh, well, you 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 can put in your orders like six weeks out. Like here's how many buckets of chicken I'm going to want for my. But for still, my party. their their throughput is limited by how much chicken can you get in that fryer from. Opening to closing on December twenty fifth. Yikes! Right. right. I mean, and how many? You got to have those chickens stacked up on pallets in the in the back of the restaurant. I mean, I like the idea of people doing takeout on Christmas because it's really a a bummer thing about our big holidays is that they all come with these very elaborate cooking uh, menus that somebody and, and you know for most of the American century, women were going to be stuck preparing on what should have been you know a day of festivity. Right. Uh, much better to to yeah, have uh, to make a, minimum a, wage slaves have you <laughs> make you a bucket of chicken. Yeah, let's have high school kids do that. And that concludes Christmas KFC entry two two zero dot de one four one one certificate number two four nine four zero in the omnibus. Futurelings at this uh, festive time of year, if you're listening to this now. Um, please consider if you're prone to uh, if you're prone to darkness or depression during the holidays you may want to be on social media instead you can uh, find us at Omnibus Project or at Ken Jennings or at John Roderick on various uh, soon to be obsolete platforms Uh, send us an email tell us how you're doing theomnibusproject at gmail.com send us your Christmas traditions your KFC stories your uh, favorite Japanese convenience store foods. Uh, you can also send us physical items if you would like to. It's a little too late to get them by the holidays, but you can send anything you like to the Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, 
Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Now, this is a letter I think we got some time ago. Oh, yeah, this was postmarked way back in October. And I had it in a stack of stuff that I thought I was just going to have to sign. And I missed that it was actually for Omnibus. Mark says... Hmm. Oh, wait, that says off-air PS. Let me give you you that in a second. Dear John and Ken, thank you so much for the work you do in making Omnibus. It never fails to pique my curiosity and make my life. It makes my life better. Thank you. Of course. Now, this is my favorite part. I do believe that you misunderstand the libertarians. We Dang don't it. all own bit. We don't all own Bitcoin. Only because you weren't smart enough at the time. But you can count on our generosity. And so he's he's talking about the uh, the famous generosity of libertarians. Of libertarians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he puts his money where his mouth is. He sent us this. Whoa! All about the Benjamins. Whoa! I am so sorry. I teased you, especially, and libertarians generally. Oh, really? I was just going to accept Mark and say I'm still going to make jokes about libertarians. Okay. Me too. But Mark, you are on our special list for your uh, support of Omnibus. One of the good ones. Yeah, one of the good ones. When You know, I have a lot of friends that are libertarians. When the Democratic Socialists round up all the, uh, all the libertarians and march them off to our, our, our re-education camps in San Francisco, uh, we're going we're gonna to do our best to get you a good assignment, Mark. Yes. Uh, I don't know what that is for you. Kitchen duty, maybe. Um, but something good. K- KFC elf. Here, let me pass you your... Oh, thank you. Your $100 bill. Wow. They're very crisp, they too. Crisp. Like, he's not, he's not into Bitcoin, but apparently he does have a mattress at home, like many libertarians, full of crisp new banknotes. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much, Mark. Very generous. And I was going to open something else. Here it is. This is a postcard from Mike who says, oh, wow. He sent us a Moldorama souvenir. Do you remember those? They're like the... P- Moldorama. They're like the penny pressing machines, except you watch you watch plast- injected plastic get molded into the shape of the oh. of Devil's Tower or the, the Louvre or wherever you are. Yeah. He sent us... I mean, it's a White City postcard. It's a World's Fair postcard. Um, is this coming from Chicago? Does this, it does. So he's sending it from his World's Fair to ours because what he has here is a Moldorama souvenir of the monorail. Oh, how cool. From the Seattle 62 Exposition. But although, but apparently there's still a Moldorama machine at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, which was their mm-hmm. 1893 uh, Museum of Science and Industry. Mm-hmm. And he asks, "Is are monorails compatible with Marxism? Yes. I would think so. The people should have the... Well, maybe the people should have more than one rail. Don't they? Don't the workers no. deserve that? No, I think I think the 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 question is, how much does it cost to ride the monorail? Is uh, it is it just a uh, like a goofy tourist trap that goes from a mall to a food court, or is it an efficient method of public transportation that is subsidized by the ninety percent taxes that we charge everybody? Who makes more than fifty thousand dollars a year? Yeah, the, all the corporations in the. Well, I was going to say in the food court, but that mall's dead. So, oh well, I guess if it's compatible with Marxism, there is no money, and everybody just rides the monorail for free. Well, that's how it works for kids. The uh, Seattle just went to free public transport. If you're a, if you're a kid or a teen, and really? that inc- and that includes the monorail. 
because they put the monorail uh, into the Orca card system a couple years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. And what that means is my kid who goes to school at the Seattle Center oh, brilliant. can now ride the monorail for free. But I don't think they want people to know that because I don't think they want tourists to know that they don't have to buy tickets, monorail tickets for their under 18-year-old kid. Oh. So if you're listening to this and you're living in a time when the Seattle monorail still exists, never buy a, a youth fair on the monorail. Just say, oh, uh, they, these are my teens. They go to Seattle high schools, and they, Listen, have, they have to let you on. If you're, a, if you're a tourist coming to Seattle, you're rich, and also you've already made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, you by being rich? You, well, and by coming to Seattle, what you should do is absolutely buy tickets for your kids and then slap your head and go, oh, right, Ken told me that this was free. Oh, too late now. So that's money's already in our coffers, our that's municipal right. coffers, suckers. So this is an interesting... I've never seen one of these injection, injected molded things. It's just kind of a, like those cheap kind of army men, mm-hmm. green army men. But it's interesting. The monorail appears to be going uphill. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you look at the monorail itself, you'll realize it's actually larger at the front than the back. It's kind of a forced perspective thing. So the monorail is not meant to be going uphill. I think it's meant to be kind of heading at you. Right. It's in motion. It's... It's an action it's shot. to convey the amazing the fu- amazing future that's arriving by mon- via monorail in, uh, in Seattle, the city of the future. Crucially, the monorail is mostly all the same altitude. That's why you have to go up to the second yes. floor to get on it. I don't think monorails work uh, uphill. That's when you need to put in your, uh, your funiculars and your, your gondolas and uh, whatnot. Uh, thank you, um, Mark and was it Mike, for sending, respectively... Really, the only two kinds of currency I truck with, which are... Actual cash. Actual cash and injected molded monorails. Right. Uh, you can find other listeners uh, by seeking out the future links on Facebook or Reddit or other online forums. And the best way to support the show, if you don't have a crisp $100 note handy, I mean, if you do, get that in the mail to us, stat. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if you don't, uh, you, there are many convenient support options available to you at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And they come with all kinds of uh, prizes that our selfless libertarian friend, uh, Mark, will not be enjoying for sending us cash. If you give with internet dollars instead of American specie, uh, you get free bonus episodes and uh, all kinds of stuff. So check out patreon.com slash omnibus project for more. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we wish you many goods and cheese and hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the office.